Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome back to the dog days of movies. My name is Eli Holm. This is the podcast where I go through and talk about any sleazy, uncomfortable, hard-to-watch movie that makes it a terrible day, hence the name, The Dog Days of Movies. On this episode, we are talking Miracle Mile, the 1988 film uh, directed by Steve Desjarnet, featuring a score from Tangerine Dream, and touching on themes such as cosmic fate, the apocalypse, nuclear scares of the 80s and 90s, and most importantly, the romance at the center of the universe. So, yeah, everybody, welcome back. Um, I actually did not write that intro down. I was like, maybe I should make these intros a little bit more proper than just me going, welcome back, everybody. Let's talk about this movie today, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. But, um, anyways, last week I talked about Blowout by Brian De Palma, uh, one of my favorite movies ever made, and now... And I, I was talking about that because uh, I then got on this thing of, like, what are other tragic romance movies that we can do? So I, I was like, hmm, maybe I'll do After Hours, maybe I'll do... What's another tragic romance movie that I like? I mean, Wendy and Lucy. I already talked about that, but that's pretty tragic. Anyways, oh, uh, I guess Enter the Void, I could tell... I mean, I don't know. Maybe Maybe I'm just blanking, but... I was like, what's another What's another nice, like, sleazy 80s, 90s, 70s movie that I can talk about that sort of, like, deals with romance, cosmic fate, and, like, everything being predetermined? Um, and obviously, Blowout, if you didn't listen to that episode, didn't watch that movie. Very tragic ending, I won't spoil it here. Um, you should go watch that movie and listen to that episode. It's great. Um, but that's a pretty, uh, a pretty tragic romance movie, uh, which you would not get from, from the plot synopsis. And same with Miracle Mile. You absolutely do not understand that this is going to be a tragic romance movie. When I originally watched this, I was going into this thinking, okay, this is like, uh, yeah, I, I remember where I was when I first watched it. It was like a school night, and I was, you know, staying up late. I think I started this probably way too late than I should have. It was like 9.30, um, and I had to wake up at like 6.30 the next day, so not the best time to start on a school night because I got done with it at 11 o'clock and, of course, could not fall asleep. Um... <laughs> Yeah, by the way, this is just going to be completely spoiler-filled. So if you if you haven't watched this, I highly recommend it. Otherwise, just listen along and have fun with it. I really don't think me talking about it or really anyone talking about it will do this movie any justice in any way. It's really just something you have to experience. Um... What I'm doing today is just talking about its themes, why I think it's amazing and so underrated, and yeah, uh, just what it what it means to me personally and in view of larger society. So, 
if you're into that type of thing and want to know why this uh, will hit society and why this is a powerful film that really, like, I know it's, you know, cheesy to say, but, oh my god, okay, and now there's a freaking, yeah, I'm recording this outside again, because, you know, I, yeah, that's just who I am, so, <laughs> but, uh, if you, if you haven't, where was I, yeah, it, it says a lot, let's just say, it says a lot, which is, cheesy to say and oh my god you know it's it says a lot about society and whatever but this movie embodies that on a personal level on a societal level and i think it hits a lot of themes that are very important to talk about so yeah miracle mile 1998 or no wait 1988 and it's directed by steve dejarnet um so another another day in the <laughs> In the middle, we had De Palma last week, and we have Desjardins this week. Um, yeah, and I'm pretty. I'm yeah. I think I'll just I'll say it now because I'm I'm really on this kick of like of like people having a terrible night and nothing is going well for them. And I think we're gonna do next week. I think we're gonna do After Hours, directed by a person everybody has heard of, Martin Scorsese. I think this is one of his most underappreciated movies for what it does and where Scorsese was at in his life, but I'm getting very ahead of myself. Um, I love that movie, and that's, and just to, just to preface Miracle Mile, if you've seen After Hours, Miracle Mile is apocalyptic fear after hours, so if that's any indication that you should go watch it, you should go watch it. Uh, yeah, so anyways, I don't even know where I was, but <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, actually, that's something interesting we can say, like, like, what are some movies that, that blatantly want to say that this says a lot about society, because I feel like, I feel like in this, in today's age, we've had a lot of media that is, I mean, you know, to state the obvious, Joker, but we have a lot of movies that are are very much like okay this this says a lot about society and like and like people go to them specifically because there are deeper implications of what society has and whatever and you know very superficial stories very little depth very little character that actually works in any substantial way like the joker <laughs> um uh, I, I recently started watching Black Mirror, and I would say that's, like, the best possible way to do a piece of media that really tries to just, like, straight up give allegories and stories about, like, this is, this is society, and, but I think Black Mirror gets away with doing that because it's anthology, so you have a lot of different perspectives going in. And it's also, the whole premise of the show is to, like, uh, hence the title, you know, point a mirror at society and say, we're not far away from this. Which is so, which is a very ambiguous statement to make in our current political uh, and economic and climate, uh, you know, 
uh, world that we live in now, so I, I would say that's a blanket statement to make. But I think I'll, I'll I'll get I'll get back to Miracle Mile eventually. But what I'm trying to say is a lot of media nowadays has very blanket statements about what society has, and 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 it's, it's very like metaphorical in a way where it sort of slaps you in the face with it. Um, Joker is a big example of it. What's another? Ah, shoot. Like, fuck, what's a, what's a bad movie that was released this year? Um, damn. Okay, it'll, it'll come to me. I'm like, there's, there's one that's so specific. Oh, like, uh, like Mother. Like something, yeah, yeah, okay. Something like Darren Aronofsky. Um, Mother, Black Swan, uh, what's, oh, Requiem for a Dream, those, those three movies are, like, very much ham-fisted, you, you know what this one's about, you know, and, in, and it sacrifices character development and, and using story and personality in sacrifice for, for a style that that is ham-fisted like I don't I don't want to use this term but like very it like it like looks like a first movie you know on paper with the story and I think in a lot of cases those movies can work I mean I like Requiem for a Dream I think it's a good movie uh Black Swan and Mother absolutely suck and I think those are really dog shit movies, but, <laughs> um, yeah, and they just sort of make fun of art house and character development and getting across themes in any really well-made way and are instead targeted at an audience of people who Darren Aronofsky thinks are too stupid to understand his metaphors, which are, uh, the most blatant put metaphors of all time, and you will understand it immediately, and, you know, and if you, if you had to look it up afterwards, you really didn't, you really didn't, you knew subconsciously what they were, it was just, you, you were forced because of this batshit crazy ending that you needed to look it up, and so then some guy on YouTube called Ending Explained could explain it to you in a very superficial way. That's what a shit ton of content is nowadays. Um, another, oh yeah, Cloverfield, that did a lot of that. Um, I still think the first two are great. It's just when they hit Paradox, they were fucking not there anymore and instead pandered to an audience who needed spoon-fisted metaphors and universe connections and, and let's make a, another MCU based on Cloverfield. Anyway, very long-winded um, talk to get back to the idea that, like, a lot of movies nowadays do not focus on... And, and this, this isn't me just, like, yelling at, at clouds and stuff. There are plenty of great movies nowadays. I'm only pointing out specific examples. Trust me, I, I love a lot of the movies that are being released nowadays. And obviously I'm only pointing out um, very American movies. 
So yeah, sorry, I I shouldn't I shouldn't make this just a blanket statement of like there's no deep movies coming on. You know, I'm saying in terms of of what Netflix is putting out, you know, Cloverfield, whatever, and what uh and what Darren Aronofsky and what people what producers think people want. It's a lot of blanket statements, very little character development, and ham-fisted ideas. Uh, hence, you get things like, <laughs> like the MCU and what 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 other you know fucking biggest names in movies right now. Uh, and so, that's why I think going back to a movie like Miracle Mile. See, I I tied it back which is very much a personal movie and you get the you get the uh the depth of it from watching these characters and understanding them and yeah so maybe maybe it's not a fair comparison to say that you know that a lot of movies nowadays are terrible and whatever i'm just saying that in in terms of what most what yeah, I guess what movies I did mention are very ham-fisted and do sacrifice character for blatant metaphors when in reality, um, you know, like a, a movie like Miracle Mile is is very just upfront and is what it is and you apply the depth to it, you think about it in a way and I guess, in a way, Miracle Mile is sort of ham-fisted in what it's trying to say, except the style is not over the top. It's very subdued, and instead of focusing on the deeper implications and the world-building, it instead focuses on two characters and shows them trying to survive in a society crumbling, and trying to stick together, which is what what a lot of apocalypse movies do. And I think I'll talk about um, Godzilla one of these days, the 2014 version. Um, but for a lot of disaster movies, they do in fact focus on very personal stories, which works in a lot of ways, um, except for when the threat is so large. But for Miracle Mile, the threat being a nuclear war, it works because A, that's one of the biggest fears at that time, and B, because the the um, central connection between the characters is so explored and so understood throughout it. So yeah, I guess those are big blanket statements about, about ham-fisted metaphors and why some work and some don't. I think in in terms of Miracle Mile, you understand all the connections and thematic relevance. There's really not a lot for for any like there's there's not a lot that you won't um how do I even say this? Like the themes are there and on the surface they're just not ham fisted in a way that a lot of movies made nowadays are, and I think that's a, a disappointing thing. So, yeah. Okay. Anyways, that's long-winded discussion about the state of movies one day. Uh, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll figure out 
um, my, my, you know, real analysis of that one of these days. It's just for right now, that's, that's, that's what I'm thinking. So don't hold me to it. I'll, I'll come back to it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, anyways, we're talking Miracle Mile and let's just get into it. Okay. So we start out with an introduction with uh, foreshadowing. The introduction is very foreshadowing and already gives you the context you need for when they'll, they'll circle back to the ending um, and you get a, a intro talking about the large burst of energy in the Big Bang and a talk about evolution and how ver- and how long it took it t- they say it took like you know a billion you know a couple billion years for then humans to evolve and our main character harry says and it took 30 years for harry wabasha to find the right girl comparing his evolution on a macro level of evolution of human characteristics and human development in a personal sense to the larger evolution and advancement of humanity. So already we understand where his ideas lie, that in order to advance as a society, you must advance your individual uh, reality first and understand what the meaning of life truly is. Um, that's a large statement right there, just the whole idea of what the meaning of life really is. Um, in a blanket statement, it's to find the one thing you truly connect with and can understand emotionally, physically, and it makes sense in every single way for you, and it gives you purpose to go on. And in a lot of ways, that's can be a sports team, a, um, a job that you love, uh, your family, your friends, but ultimately what a lot of love stories get at is that when you find that right person, uh, in Harry's quote, he says, and I found the right girl. He found the right one just for him. He says he's never dated anyone before. Well, no, he says he has dated people before, but never someone that he truly connects with. And so this is him. This is the meaning right here. Uh, And I think just talk, you know, comparing the evolution of humanity on a large scale to the evolution of ourselves is obviously a very fair comparison. Um, The macro versus the larger, or the, the micro, right? Yeah, doesn't matter. Um, the micro versus the larger implications of everything. So, yeah. And then the opening credits hit, and it shows Harry walking around a museum that uh, I think he works at, or he's just there, um, you know, and, and sort of dicking around with all the, with all the kids there on their field trip. Uh, and he's showing he's showing the kids around m- cracking jokes. It's pr- it's very cute and it's really funny. And he's got he's he's obviously doing this 
to impress a girl that he catches out of the corner of his eye, and that girl is Julie. So, Julie and Harry, well, first of all, what we get is a final scene in the montage where Julie is buying something in the gift shop, Harry catches her, gets up to the, to the, um, gets up to the counter where they're checking out, and an old couple swoops in before Harry can make his second place in line, and there's a distance between them, and Harry goes, well, you fucked it up. He goes, he stands out at the tar pits in the museum, the tar pits being a place where there's a bunch of um, woolly mammoth and dinosaur animatron, well, I guess just statues, just sitting outside in a giant, a, a literal tar pit. And the shot is amazing. It's from the perspective of a bubble in the tar pit, or not from the perspective. You see a bubble in the tar pit. There's a can of Coke lying behind, but lying beside it, showing the decay of historical evidence and the decay of of us finding meaning in that larger evolution, and just showing that you know we're moving on now, and now things are decided by consumerism and Coca-Cola and trashing the planet, um, which obviously. I wouldn't say would really be like well understood until the 2010s when the climate crisis really becomes an issue and obviously uh, it's a place of of privilege and um, and sort of uh, high class to be able to study and be able to find meaning in the history of humanity and it even just takes a lot of skill to then relate it back to yourself, and it takes a lot of time and energy to understand how larger implications of humanity and humanity's history can even be understood by you and by uh, and and how your personality relates to the personality and advancement of humanity. Um, so. There is a lot of privilege in that idea, and there is a lot of um, very, very solid mental thinking and wanting to reach outward towards those very broad ideas of evolution, humanity, and humanity's history. So, and, and I guess that's why there's consumerism present there with the can of Coke there. Uh, or it just shows, or it's just nothing at all, and it just shows that nobody gives a shit about this museum. Then the shot zooms away from the bubble, and you see the tar pits, and you see Harry staring out, uh, staring out at them from a look over. He looks very defeated, and he says, well, you let her go. You couldn't, you couldn't get her in time, which just shows... It shows the, the sort of, um, first of all, it shows the cosmic fate of, of what's happening when they do meet. Um, I think a lot of this movie is built around the idea that 
uh, meeting someone is a is uh, a representation of cosmic fate and the universe guiding you towards who you're supposed to meet and who you're supposed to be with for the rest of your life. Whether or not you agree with it, you really can't. Whether or not you personally agree with it, I would say it's hard to deny that a lot of a lot of uh, universe. Um, a lot of choices made and coincidences in the universe come from the cosmic wheel spinning and guiding you to the right person. And Harry and Julie got lucky. They meet each other, and it seems like the perfect relationship blooming. Um, after Harry and Julie couldn't meet in the in the um, in the uh, what am I trying to say? In the gift shop, then the universe guides them to meet at a place of evolution, of a, a representation of humanity's frozen in time uh, area, the tar pits being um, something that, if solidified, would trap uh, any subject in it, which is obviously high foreshadowing for the ending of the film which I'll, I'll talk about. So just keep in mind the idea of the tar pits and what it's used for as a trapping of humanity and humanity's history. And in this moment, two people come together and spark a romance. And it's beautiful. And it's the universe guiding two lonely individuals and finally showing them who their right partner should be. And that's just the intro. <laughs> and we're like 25 minutes into this podcast so <laughs> you you know I love this movie man I fucking this movie is so good Jesus Christ um then Julie and Harry they go on dates together uh let's see they're like they go and they they go to a fancy restaurant and they they buy all the lobsters from the fish tank filled with lobsters. You know how a lot of fancy restaurants have that. And then they release all the lobsters back into the ocean. You get a great shot of them chucking lobsters back into the ocean. It's very cute. The sentiment is there. We don't have to get into whether or not that's a good idea or a bad idea. The sentiment is there of preserving life and preserving the... the um, the rightful place, and, and in that moment, it's Harry and Julie acting as the universal guiders, bringing the lobsters back to their rightful homes, so, yeah, or, or you just want to read it as a cute little date idea, I don't know, take it as that, man, I don't, who knows, um, then, then you do get a conversation about cosmic fate, Harry talks about how meeting Julie is cosmic fate, the idea that a relationship is the ultimate goal in life. Uh, I wouldn't say it's... I, I wrote that down last night as just a blanket statement. I wouldn't say it's the goal, because a lot of people have different um, ideas of what that perfect relationship looks like, relationship being uh, a blanket term not just used for... Um, for uh, a romantic or friendship relationship, it can really be with anything, um, but it, it becomes it becomes the ultimate uh, 
true connection in life when you do find that one thing or multiple things that do really connect with you. And in this case, the cosmic fate brought Harry and Julie together, and it's very beautiful watching them ride around on, um, they ride around on a carousel and talk about this. They go on a, they go on a nice little Ferris wheel ride. It's very, very lovely. Um, it's just, it's just beautiful, you know, watching two people who are down and lonely. Uh, we don't really get a lot of intro. It's the, the film is mainly told through Harry's perspective, um, so we'll get more from Julie and how she feels on this later. I would say her character really evolves in the second half of the movie, so we'll we'll get there later. But for right now, this comes from Harry's perspective, as he finally found the right person, and she did too. Then, uh, let's see. Then cut to Harry playing in a band. He's a trombonist, we learn. Um, which is a word I never thought I'd be saying, but he plays the trombone for a band. Julie takes her grandpa, uh, who she's very close with, and they they watch Harry play the trombone. Harry, like, cuts off some guy who's trying to steal his solo, and the grandpa loves Harry, thinks he's a great guy. They get They get tube steaks in a public park, which... I assume is hot dogs. I should have looked it up. I assume a tube steak is hot dogs. But I'm not sure. Because, like, they're in a public park. So I just assume it's, like, a hot dog stand. But for some reason, the grandpa calls it a tube steak. And Harry's like, yeah, yeah, get me one with a little little mustard and sauerkraut with it. Um, Julie, uh, I think, is vegetarian. It's never really confirmed. Although it would make sense for an idea presented at the beginning when they do throw the lobsters in as a preservation of life and natural areas. Whereas Harry, um, in, in the idea of eating animals, represents the survival instincts of humanity and how... how preserving your own life comes at the sacrifice of others um so obviously i can't really blame either one of them vegetarian vegetarianism is a whole other discussion uh, i was vegetarian at some point and i guess i never really thought that like you know the the whole idea just comes from preserving life and it's a sacrifice of 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 you not willing to sacrifice others for your own benefit, uh, sacrificing other forms of life for your own survival. So, which is just interesting. Then, uh, then we learn um, Julie sees uh, her grandma in the same park that Harry and her grandpa are in, and Julie goes over to her gr grandma and is like, "Hey, grandma, you know, can can you go up and?" And make us a bowl of ice cream or something, you know. We'll we'll be up there in a little bit, you know. Um, and then, then uh, Harry, you know, accidentally mentions, "Well, what about your grandpa?" And the look on on her grandma's face is one of horror. And as she sees, uh, 
the grandpa across the park and she you know gets out of there she's like all right we're we're done and julie explains to harry that they haven't talked in 15 years she says i can't even remember what the fight's about at this point they it's it's implied that they had a large falling out and aren't aren't talking to each other anymore and yet they live in the they live in the same apartment building just on different or maybe they live across from each other it's like a um it's like a community of apartment buildings uh anyways julie there and grandma and grandpa live in three separate apartments so yeah or yeah i i think so well maybe maybe i'm right maybe i'm not wrong i don't know who knows or maybe julie lives with her grandma because that's a scene later on i don't know does it really matter no point is uh julie's grandparents have not spoken in 15 years so keep that in mind then harry brings julie to the all-night fat boy which is johnny's diner a uh all-night diner it's and they kiss in front of the fluorescent lights uh harry says I'm going to meet you at 12.15 to go dancing with you. Julie says, I can dance like you wouldn't believe it. You better get a, You better take a nap and get rested for our crazy night of dancing. So Harry goes back to his apartment, and you get a nice scene of him staring out at the sunset, looking at a lady uh, feeding the rats, feeding the rats on the side of the road, helping out the life uh, even below her, uh, as we assume that she's homeless. So it just shows the, the, the food chain in that moment and helping out life below you uh, for your own sacrifice. And then Harry goes to bed, sets, a, sets an alarm for 12.15, and then we cut to a scene of the electrical panels in his apartment building and the there's a, a bird a bird's nest on one of the on one of the panels and it lights on fire because it's a bird's nest you know so <laughs> so then the whole building goes in a blackout for a little bit then when it finally boots up harry it's like when it finally boots back up again, it is 3.45 a.m., and Harry wakes up, realizing that 12.15 has come and gone. We get shots of Julie outside of the fat boy, and she's, she's waiting right by the spinning clock that spins around 12.15, 1.15, her calling in the phone booth, and then finally her co-worker just takes her home. And she goes to sleep with her grandma, and that she takes uh, she takes a sleeping pill. I think it's a, a varium or something like that. They mention it later on, and she is out cold. Then Harry, when he wakes up at 3:45, he's stressed, and he says, "You finally found the right girl, and you blew it." So it's yeah, it's it's pretty sad, you know you. 
it, it says it all in that statement. You know, you blow it, and he's he's thinking what everybody would be thinking in that moment. Well, I fucked it up, and now I'll never be able to... Or she'll, she'll be very mad at me. You know, what if she breaks up with me? Blah, blah, blah. Reminder that they've only gone on a couple dates at this point. Or maybe it's even only one. Yeah, actually, it's one, because before... Harry drops her off at the fat boy. She says, third date, I'm going to screw your eyes blue. So I guess it would be only this. I, th I guess it would be the first date because then, yeah, I guess either the first or second. Yeah, probably doesn't matter. But he drives to the fat boy. He slams his car into a palm tree outside of the fat boy because remember, this takes place in Los Angeles on the Miracle Mile. And then... Oh, car is doing a little driveway pull around here. Okay, you got it, buddy. Um, then, as he crashes into a palm tree, rats fall onto his car. Again, you know, showing the, the rats and showing the lower parts of life in this moment as we build up to the reveal. Harry goes inside and meets the people in the diner. There's a, a military girl, or a military woman there who works for the government or something, something along those lines. Two men who are blue-collar workers. They run the, they run the street sweepers in the city and they're very attracted to the military woman. Then there's the diner worker, the cashier, and then... Oh. Okay. Sorry, I had to pause there for a second. My dad just came home and, you know, I, you, yeah, in, in, interrupted, let's just say. So, <laughs> um, I don't even know where I was. Um, oh, yeah, I was talking about the diner introducing the people in the diner, then there's a couple other people, a couple other people in the diner, there is one, one woman who, uh, I, well, I don't want to, I don't want to assume anything, but it's sort of implied that she's a sex worker, so I'll just use that as a very blanket term, um, I won't say anything more on that, because I don't want to get it wrong, uh, so please, if you if you know what I'm saying, um, and and if it's wrong, then just please let me know. I'm not sure about it, uh, but it's heavily implied that she is because she talks about how she she knows these streets uh, and the the hours of the night, and she knows that there's a lot of weirdos around here. Is what she says later on in the movie. So. There's someone like that. Then there's a, an airline attendant or something like that. She's got her sister's airplane flight attendant outfit on. And who knows, man? They're just, they're just characters, stand-ins to meet and then immediately forget about. But they've all got pretty distinct personalities, and it's pretty cool. Then Harry takes a random phone call in the phone booth outside... And it's a man warning of an apocalypse in 50. He says the, the bombs will be launched in 50 minutes, but you'll get them in an hour and 10. 
So, starting this right now, that's the that's the time. That's the countdown. We've had we've had ooh, excuse me. We've had about 20 minutes of introduction and now we're getting the countdown. About an hour and 10 minutes in pretty much real time, I would say. I'm not sure if it's exact. Um, but an uh, yeah, so I'll just say like an hourish minutes in the movie an hour and 10 the a nuclear bomb will be exploded over California. So keep that in mind. And the man on the other end tries to call his dad, but instead ends up calling the phone booth that Harry picks up. Um, and the man says that, uh, tell my dad that I'm sorry about last summer, showing that in moments of, of true fear and true knowledge of death, we try and and do our we try and right our wrongs because in this moment there is nothing left and we need to be the best possible version of ourselves when we die in that moment which will come up uh, a little later on so just keep that thought in mind of what people do in the face of apocalypse the man on the other end is then in interrupted uh, by two people who who clearly have guns and they ask him what he's doing and then the man on the other end who we learn works in a missile silo is shot and killed the people on the other line who shot the man tell harry forget about what you just heard and go back to sleep nothing is wrong we know that the man works in a missile silo and is trying to warn his dad about apocalypse before it gets out to the public. Then Harry comes in, shaken up, he comes into the diner, and he tells the people about the call, and the military lady who works for the government, she makes a couple phone calls to people she knows, and she confirms it. So, I, I know there's a lot more in that scene that... But, but for, well, you know, a lot more like character quirks and just little one line or something. But we're trying to, I'm trying to focus more on Harry's story and how it can relate to society at large. So, um, th those are just the general plot beats. Harry is clearly shaken up. Nobody believes him. Uh, in fact, the cook points a gun at him and says, You're scaring me, man. Are, are you serious about what you said out there? And then, when the military lady confirms it, the cook runs back with a shopping cart back into the food storage, piles a bunch of cans into the cart, we get a great tracking shot of him in the diner, going out the front door, loading up a fat boy van with a bunch of cans of food, and he piles everybody in the diner into the van and says, we gotta get out of here. The, there's a homeless man who who is very religious, and he comes on to the van. There's a couple of hookers, or I'm sorry, I shouldn't have not in 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 context of the movie they call them hookers. I know, I know that that's a very out outdated term. So we'll just say we'll just say uh, sex workers who are out on the streets, and then Harry and everybody pile into the van. And Harry is 
uh, still shaken up. He needs, he's like, what, where, where are we going? Are we, are we going to the airport or something? Or, you know, I need to get, I need to get Julie. Cause Julie is obviously still asleep back at her grandma's apartment, which I did. I did. Yeah. It, it's, it's their apartment. I guess they share it. So yeah, make, make that statement, I guess. Then the mil the government lady is talking to everybody and is like, we need to make a list of who we need to bring to Antarctica. She says she's getting a helicopter ready to take them to Antarctica where they'll start a new civilization, um, which you, you'd have to assume that I guess they're in like a full-on nuclear war at that point because I'm like, well, why not just go to another country? Um, and then it's sort of confirmed that a bunch of militaristic powers around the world are in a battle. So she says the best possible solution is to go to Antarctica and tells them, write a list of all famous people and all greats, scientists, engineers, whoever else we need to bring to make this new population better for everybody. Which... This shows, in this moment, uh, a response to the apocalypse, which is um, trust in the advancement of humanity, trust in that things will get better while everything is crumbling, and trust in advancing uh, and make, making sure it all get, gets right again. So, then Harry, all shaken up, still worrying about Julie, jumps off the truck on a turnpike uh, and leaves the van behind as they drive to go to a, the airport and get on a helipad or get yeah get an airplane to fly them to Antarctica or maybe yeah maybe it's helicopter something who knows doesn't doesn't really matter then Harry in the middle of the turnpike uh, he has a gun with him Ah, uh, we're not really sure where he got it from. Or maybe, he, I don't know. Or maybe he just grabbed it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He grabbed it to try and make the the cook driving the car stop the, um, stop the, stop the car so he could get off and go get Julie. Um, but the cook doesn't want to slow down for anybody and wants to get to the airport as quick as possible. So Harry just jumps off with the gun and then hijacks Wilson's car. Wilson is clearly a young guy, maybe like 20 to 25, and Wilson is like clearly distraught by a guy jumping in the back of his car, and he's like, you, you can have anything, man. I have a bunch of radios in my trunk. Uh, clearly, he's stolen all these radios, um, as, you know, who's up at four in the morning driving around with a bunch of radios, or he's just selling them, but it's more, it's more implied that he stole them. At least that's how I take it, um, but maybe that's, maybe that's unfair, maybe he's just trying to sell them, but considering how distraught he is, and saying, and he says, the police can't know about what's in my trunk if they stop us, so... I think he stole them. I think we'll just make that. So he holds Wilson at gunpoint, and he tells them to 
drive to get to Julie's apartment building. And before they do that, they stop at a gas station. And the, the Wilson takes the, takes the gas pump. And um, uh, Harry goes to make a phone call to try and get Julie on the phone. Then the clerk from the gas station comes out holding a shotgun and trying to trying thinks that Wilson is stealing gas and says you got to pay for this buddy and then obviously the police show up and they they see that the clerk has a gun so they drive up and they tell the man to get on the ground and Wilson says yeah this guy was this guy was trying to kill me you know he yeah, he was. I, I was just paying for gas, and he was trying to kill me, which isn't isn't very. I mean, it's like true in some way, um, but they did come to an agreement beforehand that he could have gas. It would just cost fifty dollars, which is more money than it should have to get gas at that late at night. So, then the cops show up, try to arrest the clerk. Wilson sprays gasoline on both the cops, scared that the man is going to rat him out for what he has in his trunk. And then uh, then he sprays gasoline on the cops, and one of the cops fires their gun, which then causes, obviously, her, the cop, to, <laughs> to light on fire. Then everything catches on fire. Harry jumps into the open police cruiser, drives away, gets Wilson into the car, and then boom, the gas station blows up. Because Wilson sprayed gasoline everywhere. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Wilson is, like, very distraught and is like, you know, I had to get them away. They would have, they were going to shoot me. You know, they, they were going to find what I had in my trunk. Which, um, is, yeah, I mean, it's pretty, yeah, that's pretty, pretty, uh, makes, makes a lot of sense why he'd be very distraught. And also, considering the cop fired their pistol first as a warning shot, because Wilson sprayed the gasoline everywhere, uh, Wilson understands that things were about to get deadly. Then, Harry makes it to Julie's apartment and they get her, well, okay, Harry tells Wilson, keep the car running, I'll be down in four minutes. Harry wa runs up all the flights of stairs to Julie's apartment, and uh, Julie's apartment is with her grandma, and Julie's grandma is very distraught to see Harry here at such a late hour. She has she has a shotgun as well. is very scared. She's uh, Harry explains to her that there's a nuclear bomb going off. Pack everything you can and come along with us. Harry gets Julie, carries her away. They get a shopping cart full of stuff, and they then they see that Wilson took the car and left. So Harry is left with Julie and her grandmother wandering around in a shopping cart. And keep in mind, things are moving really fast-paced. If it sounds like I'm just cranking out information and not really, like, talking about it a whole lot, 
it's it's because I am. This is very much like like I, again, I called it apocalyptic after hours. And if you've seen that movie, you know why. Because it's just back to back to back terrible things happening and everything goes in disarray as the world crumbles and the, um, everybody's lives fall apart as the apocalypse is coming down onto all of them. And the realization that this is their last night, potentially on Earth. Again, we don't know if we we still, uh, like, assume that it's true, we as the audience, because of how real the phone call at the beginning sounded, but everybody else doesn't. And so, uh, yeah, then Harry... Yeah, so then we're left with Harry, Julie, in the shopping cart, and... Uh, um, Julie's grandmother. They make it down to the lobby. They realize that Wilson has left with the police cruiser to go get his sister because Wilson obviously wants to get someone in the face of the apocalypse, wants to find that one person who he truly connected with and cared about, which will come up later on in the movie. Uh, so much like much like Harry and his quest to find and savor the the person that he loves uh, and potentially make it out because remember there are they are getting on a helicopter to go to go to Antarctica and start a new life so Harry wants Julie with her and Wilson wants his sister with her then we see um, we see Julie's grandfather waking up and coming downstairs and seeing seeing Julie's grandmother and they make eye contact and they hug understanding that this could be their last night together then Julie and Harry go off and try and get away we see uh, we see the grandparents drive away in their car Harry stops them and says, you know, like, like I, I don't know if I should tell her yet, blah, blah, blah. Scared to, to let Julie know about the current situation in the world. Um, and so the grandparents drive off as they want to spend their last night together. They say they're going to their favorite diner and they're going to they're gonna eat the biggest sandwich possible. And it's really happy. It's it's very cute watching two people who haven't connected in all these years still find love with each other and still find a source of passion for each other. And the love never left. And that's just a very beautiful sentiment that even that because of these final moments. Sure, there's a bit of regret that you didn't utilize those 15 years, and now you're finally doing it on the last night, but there is something beautiful that they're at the end of the line, and all they want to do is love each other and eat a pastrami sandwich together. So, take that as you will. Take it sad. Take it happy. Um, but, you know, that's still a beautiful sentiment. Then... Julie and Harry make it to the heliport there and the heliport is on top of this large building 
where there's a helicopter pad on there, and there's some guys running around with a bunch of junk, throwing it in the back of the helicopter, and they say, there's no pilot, and Julie still has no idea of what's happening, and why everybody is freaking out. The two men on top say that they know the government woman from the beginning, and they know what's happening, they know about the nuclear thing, and they explain to Julie what's happening. Meanwhile, Harry leaves the heliport to go find a pilot, and ends up with this gorgeous, gorgeous Steadicam shot. Oh my god, is this shot good. The camera follows Harry around as he enters an all-night gym, a beautiful neon gym. It's classic 80s. Everybody's in the tightest shorts possible, the tightest tank tops possible, bench pressing a bunch of weight. It is one of the gayest scenes I've seen in a movie like this. Just fantastic. The camera follows him around as he infiltrates this night, this night gym, and says, has anybody, you know, can anybody here fly a helicopter? He ends up on one person doing shoulder presses, doing them very, very right. You can see those shoulders contracting. Ah, let's just say that scene is fucking awesome, dude. It ends up on him as he's doing those shoulder presses. <laughs> Sorry, I just need to nerd out about how good that shot is. Oh my god. And then the man says, yes, I can fly a helicopter, and but says, let me grab someone first. Goes into the other room, calls out, Leslie, Leslie, come here. And then a man comes out, uh, meaning that they're, that they're, yeah, meaning that they're gay together. I'm just pointing that out because then they say, um, the man says, yeah, you got a problem with this, buddy? And Harry says, no, 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 let's, let's just get going. So, yeah, that's, you know, just had to make that, that little classic 80s thing. <laughs> you would not, you would not see that unless it was an 80s movie, which I just think is funny. So, I, I wrote down in my notes, he finds a pilot and it's a gay bodybuilder. So, just a classic behind-the-scenes note of what I wrote down. Then, outside on the street, uh, let's see here, yeah, outside on the street, Will, uh, Harry sends the two people up to the heliport as he sees Julie outside on the street doing the same thing now, screaming for if anybody can fly a helicopter, so clearly she knows about the nuclear bomb coming their way right now. Then. As they meet up, and, and Julie's like, what? Is it real? What's happening? Then, a police car, who we know it's Wilson's, crashes into a department store. Mannequins fly everywhere. Clothes fly everywhere. It looks like a classic Dayton's, or maybe a, a Macy's, and the fluorescent lights twinker, twinkle in the, in the night, and everything... Yeah, the department store is crushed. Then, Wilson climbs out of the car, grabs his sister in the back seat, and you get this great shot of Wilson carrying his sister 
in his arms up an escalator that won't move anymore. Or no, it's an escalator not working, but it's the down escalator, and we don't know where the up escalator goes. And it's a shot from down below showing them trying to reach the peak of each other, trying to reach the the sort of... Um, the beautiful end to their relationship together as the two people, you, you could even say climbing to heaven as they know that they're going to die together. And, of course, Wilson's sister dies in his arms as he cries on the escalator. Then Harry and Julie catch up with him, and uh, Wilson begs Harry to shoot him, because he knows he's going to die anyway. The police are are outside swarming the building. And because obviously the police are after them. Because Wilson is driving around in a stolen police van. And the... Let's see here. Wilson begs Harry to kill him so he can join his sister. And before Harry can pull the trigger, Wilson dies anyway. Both Wilson and his sister died in the comfort of each other, and they, they made it. They died together. Harry and Julie go out of the department store, and now the streets are in shambles. People know. Cars are filling the streets. Everything is jammed. It's one of the worst traffic jams you've ever seen. Um... Stealing and riots ensue as people rob and kill. The apocalypse unle unleashes the worst. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world now. As even though, um, even though capitalism pushes a dog-eat-dog -dog world in, uh, in a controlled sense, now this is the unleashed manic survival of people who will do anything to sacrifice others, do anything to get gain of stealing and uh, blowing up department stores to, to get whatever TV and whatever they can find in there, commercial and superficial gains in a consumer capitalist society as it crumbles around them. Everybody is in survival mode, only thinking about themselves, and who they want, and or what they want to bring into the afterlife as their final image. I said, the apocalypse unleashes the worst in people. Uh, I said, juxtaposing advancement with individual survival, which is something I talked about at the beginning of the episode, the advancement of humanity over the advancement of the individual, and which one matters more in society. To a privileged person, like a government official, who knows they need to do the right thing, it would pro they would probably make it, as, uh, as with the government lady in the beginning, who doesn't, who smartly doesn't have a lot of character, is sort of just a stand-in, for people trying to do the right thing. So I think it's good that she has very little character and is only only there to provide a sense of, well, of course the government would be doing this. They'd be trying to, you know, trying to help uh, advance society 
with the right people, you know, getting getting together all the famous people, all the all the smart thinkers of the world is what she says. And so then what you have is you leave the rest of society crumbling because the government is only focusing on advancement of the smart people and the people they know that truly quote-unquote matter in society even though they created through their capitalist system created all the people who are now thrive or not thriving who are now trying to survive with this doggy dog mentality and when it's ramped up to 11 and zero rules apply they can therefore go batshit crazy and just go bananas on whatever and it's it becomes an ultimate game of survival the uh, privileged advancement of humanity versus julie's ad- hope of advancement of humanity so you you have three three different things here at play which julie's thing will come up later i'll talk about it more but you have the government privileged look at at advancement of humanity they want to advance humanity and create a perfect civilization through in Antarctica and create a society of the smartest people alive. You have Julie, who I'll explain this later, but she has hope that everybody can come together and create, no matter who they are, create the best society possible. She says the survivors will hopefully rebuild and come together and make it all make sense. So she's just talking about the normal folk coming together and creating a society. The government is talking about advancing the society with only the smartest people, which I'd argue both of those will eventually crumble because human nature takes its course and everybody does everything for themselves because of the society we've lived in, the capitalist society we've built for ourselves, the only thing you have is yourself in this world. Even though you have hope, you can have hope that humanity will rebuild and connect in the face of apocalypse at the end of the day when, ev- when shit hits the fan. And if you're a regular folk on the ground, you're going to be trying as hard as you can to survive and do whatever the fuck you can because at the end of the day you were built like this you were trained and you've been following in this your entire life you just were controlled and now there is no control you are looking for control and yet you're controlled by the societal doggy dog nature of capitalism obviously applies to america um, I, I don't know how this would fare in other political systems, so I'm just talking about how it looks in America, because this does take place. California on the Miracle Mile. There's apocalypse sirens wailing, and everything is going to shit. Uh, it's some beautiful shots of the apocalypse. Everything looks terrible. It's all crumbling. Again, 50 minutes have passed, and now people know about it. So now there's only 20 minutes until the bombs hit. The bombs were launched uh, 
the bombs were launched at 50 minutes since the initial phone call, and now it's 20 minutes till they go off. Uh, Harry ends up in the sewers. He's running away from someone, trying to shoot Harry for no reason at all, other than Harry jumped on top of his car as the man, even though the man was getting nowhere in the traffic jam, and, do, and the man does a lot more damage by trying to shoot Harry through the, the roof of the car. So, counter counterproductive, but again, trying to protect the, ca- the consumer mindset of the, of the vehicle as, as an extension of your own and as a mythologized, um, uh, you know, as a mythologized version of, of you, essentially. The stuff makes you in this world. And so the man chases Harry through the streets as he climbs down into the sewer. And the man is shooting, yelling, I'm going to get you. I'm going to kill you. Uh, Obviously, that doesn't happen. Harry makes it back to the building, grabs Julie, who's stumbling around the lobby, you know, watching all this decay, watching everything crumble. The news is reporting on it. They're saying... We're getting rumors that there's a bomb going off. The streets are in shambles. Nobody knows what to do. It is genuinely the most harrowing depiction of chaos and destruction and what people would do in the face of, of ultimate uh, killing and, and what people would do in the face of apocalypse. So, which is... It's, it's very, very scary. Julie and Harry climb into the elevator to go up to the top where the helipad is. Julie asks, people are going to rebuild, right? The survivors will advance. Harry says, I think it's the insect's turn. He sees the destruction around him. He sees the human nature. He sees the capitalist dog-eat-dog mindset and how it's placed a right of survival over everyone, and how the privileged, uh, the privileged, even the, even the, and Harry's losing hope that they'll even make it to Antarctica. He's just going because Julie is going, so what else is he supposed to do, really? He just wants to be with Julie. She talks about how she didn't utilize all her time well. Very sad line Uh, in the face of apocalypse thinking back to all the things you didn't do instead of focusing on what you did do harry gets her away from that thought line she says she's she's reeling in regret harry takes her away from that train of thought and says focus on me right now focus on what's actually mattering in this moment Focus on what you did accomplish in life. And more importantly, focus on us and focus on what we did together and our universal and cosmic fate together. We, we advanced and we created ourselves and we love each other. And at the end of the day, that's sort of all that matters. There's a man, when they get to the helipad, or yeah, in the elevator, they 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 kiss. 
Harry says, our spirits will be... Or no, 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 no. Wait. Or does Julie say this? It, I, it, it doesn't matter. They both say, our spirits will be together. No matter where the, the atoms are. No more words except, I love you. I just, I just want to pause there. I mean, that's, that is one of the best lines ever written in, in cinema history, honest to God. I, yeah, um, it's just, it shows the cosmic fate of them coming together, and that's it. They are together, that's it. That's all that matters. No more regrets, nothing else. Even if they die, their bodies crumble, they connected together, their spirits will always be intertwined together, and their love will last forever. Then they get to the top of the helipad as they kiss and enjoy the moment together. There's a man on the helipad binging on drugs that he got from the pharmacy. We assume that he's binging on all the drugs that are are for the new society in Antarctica, and he's drinking a whole bunch of wine and beer and whatever else. Uh, and I wrote down escapism to the unnatural, escapism to the sin in the face of doom, escapism to to it's just pure escapism, and. Uh, brings up 444 last day on earth Abel Ferreira which we'll talk about soon um and just how how we if we choose to be drunk in our last moments it's the ultimate acceptance of escapism and it's the ultimate acceptance that you are nothing without this and that you had to be there you couldn't exist in the natural this is your final goodbye. Julie and Harry get on the copter. They fly away. The bodybuilder is bloodied. His, he's, his face is all bloodied. He's flying the helicopter. It's so fucking serious what's happening. Then you see missiles go off in the distance. The helicopter crashes into the tar pit from the beginning montage. I said... It's ironic to be dying in the place of preserving evolution and history. As they crash into the tar pits, they, they both, Julie tries to escape, because when they're in the tar pits, the tar rises up and tries to cover them as they search for this air bubble in the helicopter. And Julie tries to escape. She says, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. What's happening? And Harry takes her and says, don't think about that now. Think about us. This is our moment together. And I just, I just really think that this ending is just so... I, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just describe, you know, describe what happens. They talk about how this is their moment together. Julie says, well... We're in the tar pits. They'll put us in the museum. As they die with each other, they talk about themselves and their love. 
and how beautiful it was. The time that they shared was so special. Two people clashing, coming together, recognizing how beautiful it was. And it's devastating that this is just a blooming relationship taken away from them as, as the world crumbles and as nothing is left besides them, their love. You don't think about whatever's happening outside. You think about themselves in this moment, the blooming relationship, the cosmic fate, bringing two beautiful individuals together for their perfect marriage of love, kindness, and happiness together. And they talk about, they say, they will be preserved as diamonds, pieces of beauty, and they'll blossom at some point. Eventually, some society, millions of years, will find them together as they died together, preserved in tar pits together. They will, instead of preserved as skeletons and bones, they will be preserved as diamonds. Showcases of blossoming love and the acceptance of humanity and letting go of everything else in the face of the one true meaning in life, true love and happiness. And then, as they end on the line, diamonds. And then, fade out, cut to black. And then, a giant bolt of light comes onto the black screen. And we understand that the bomb has set off and they have died. So, yeah. So that's that's Miracle Mile for you, everybody. Um, really takes the the cake for the worst day you could ever have um, in the dog days of movies. Uh, yeah. So what what can we learn about this movie? Um, I think for starters, it's shows the attitudes towards apocalypse and the attitudes towards what really matters in life. There are different routes to this. I already talked about survival. The world is in shambles. So the the people under the grip of the dog-eat-dog capitalist society scramble around to preserve themselves because that's all they know. The people at the top of the food chain, they... They, uh, they decide to, ad- to try and advance with only the best, even though they created the dog-eat-dog mindset. So they will ultimately fail, even though, even though they try. Human nature always comes back in. Dog-eat-dog, advancement of yourself, because we've manufactured that. You know, I argue that the real human nature should be advancing humanity but instead we've manufactured that it's evolving yourself because we just care too much about ourselves and we've been conditioned to only care about ourselves because we do live in a capitalist system then you can hold on 
to the shreds of love and you accept love into your life you accept love as the ultimate meaning and that's that's really what what the the meaning of this is trying to get at it's definitely a tragedy but at the end of the day the diamonds that they became the blossoms of true love true connection true understanding of each other the ultimate encapsulation of what love truly means they will be preserved as diamonds and i wrote down diamonds are forever and they they will be even if in millions of years when planet of the apes happens and everybody's running around and they find them together it will be a sign of humanity in the face of danger, in the face of our pesky wars, our pointless wars and fightings together, there were two people who gave up all the superficiality of fighting, of dog-eat-dog mentality, and instead embraced each other in these final moments and learned to love each other, learned to connect, which is ultimately our goal in life, is to connect with whatever truly brings a sense of purpose and meaning in life. So, they found the best in each other, and they found the ultimate meaning. They got rid of all the superficiality, they preserved themselves as diamonds, died in a tar pit, in a place where we preserve humanity and our evolution and our history, and now they'll be a part of history forever as an indication of humanity in humans. No matter if in a million years apes find us, find them preserved as diamonds, it will show the true connection of life. And, and it will show what humanity should really be all about. Connection, connection and advancement of everybody and everything and sacrificing yourself yourself and the self superficiality in order to advance and learn to love everybody and learn to love and connect with the one true person who makes it all special diamonds are forever Okay. All right. So that's Miracle Mile, everybody. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, if you liked this episode, I would appreciate it if you could follow, rate it on Spotify, um, do whatever, do whatever you feel uh, you, you would like to support this podcast in. You can tell your friends about it if you find you see any other of my episodes and recommend them around follow me on instagram at eli holmy uh, and follow me on more importantly follow me on letterboxd at eli holmy you can see all the movies i watch and uh, yeah what 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 i've been watching recently which is i think is a lot of fun and i'll follow you because uh it's like the only social media i actually use So, yeah, next week's episode will be on After Hours, the 
Martin Scorsese movie from 1997. Uh, if you want to watch along, go watch that after hours. It's only 97 minutes long, so you should go watch it. It's great. It's very similar to this, except... Uh, yep, actually, it's it's just very similar to this. Let's Yeah, yep. I'll save it for next week. So we'll talk about that. All right. This has been the Dog Days of Movies. Uh, I am Eli Holm, signing off. Bye-bye.